This is an ABC podcast. You know, every now and again, I um, suggest a show for the minefield. Welcome to said minefield. Um, well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Chortling in the background. So, yeah, indeed. Um, <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> and then so much time goes by between the time I suggest it and the time we do it that I cannot remember really anything about the suggestion in the first place, what I had in mind, why exactly we're doing it, what I found interesting about the idea. <laughs> this is such a show. I'm glad to say we got here, <laughs> but that is the circuitous route that we've taken. I love it. That's that's pretty much right, isn't it, Scott? Yeah, it's pretty much right. Anyway, it's taken us a while to get to this point. It's a fun, <laughs> it's a fun topic. This is a really good one. Um, before we dive in, though, now that everyone's peaked and ready, can I just do a quick little plug for something that's coming up? Yeah. Um, so, uh, as people would have heard from a few weeks back, we do have our not quite book club final installment for the year coming up on the 8th of December. Uh, We've done a TV show. Uh, We've done a book, Jane Austen's Emma. We've done a rock performance. And what a show that was uh, on Queen's 1985 performance at Live Aid. And we're rounding the year off with a film. And we had so many to choose from, obviously. Uh, And this in some ways seems counterintuitive, but it's it's unavoidable. It's too delicious to pass up. It's Stanley Kramer's Academy Award-winning 1967 film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Houghton. Bit of trivia for you, Walid. Sidney Poitier starred in two Academy Award-winning films in 1967. What was the other? Oh, in the same year. Yeah. I mean, don't ask me this when I've got Google in front of me. It, it is a masterpiece. In, I suspect this other film is going to come up prominently. Oh, really? Yes. It's, it's uh, the 1967 film In the Heat of the Night, an astonishing drama, uh, a police investigative thriller involving a racist white cop and a northern black cop chained together as Sidney Poitier so often is with an unwilling white person in order to solve a common problem and watching the moral transformation that takes place. You could actually simply be describing Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, As a matter of fact, Sidney Poitier's role as the inoffensive black man who then affects a kind of moral transformation, an awakening, an opening of the eyes of the people around him. That seems to be the role that he was more often than not, cast in. James Baldwin, interestingly enough, Walid, would refer to Sidney Poitier, whom he loved. I mean, he adored him. Would refer to him as the wonder doctor. Uh, the one who binds, who is cast in the role of binding people's unwilling wounds. Uh, it's mm. kind of kind of interesting. But anyway, anyway. Guess by the way, music mm. by Quincy Jones. Yes, that's right. That that's right. Wow. Sorry, it's, I was just looking it up. It's incredible. I mean, if you want a little bit of homework yourself, Willie, you could always watch In the Heat of the Night. Uh, as well as uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. But anyway. The supplementary reading. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. An appendix. Um, But anyway, what we're discussing uh, on the 8th of December is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It is is a wonderful film. It's troubling. It's morally problematic. It's morally arresting. uh, And it's wonderful, wonderful material for a show like The Minefield. Excellent. All right. But that's not what we're talking about today. a long time ago. We're talking about clothes. We're talking about fashion, which, you know, I mean, anybody who's seen pictures of Waleed knows that uh, he is a a bit of a sartorial villain. He has excellent, excellent taste in the clothes that he wears. No doubt because of the army of people behind him, making sure he always puts the best foot forward. Uh, Anybody who's seen me knows that I've never come across a shirt that fits right. So we wanted to talk about clothes. We wanted to talk about fashion, but in a slightly different way. So, you know, we are in the lead up to Christmas. This, what's the best way of describing Christmas? It's, how's this, Waleed? Christmas is that annual rite that transforms into a paradoxical 
other-centered orgy of gift-giving. Um, there's something more like... Oh, was that the, that, was that the full stop? Yeah. I, I thought you were about to continue. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's graphic. But there's something wonderful, isn't there, about the fact that we devote this many months, this many hours, this much frustration, these many crowds to giving gifts to people. The sheer other-centeredness of it and the fact that it's organized at a vast social level, there is something about that mm. that I think is kind of beautiful. It's kind of wonderful and nothing to be sneered at. At the same time, the very ventures that we make to the shopping centers or to ad splattered websites places us as easy prey to, I think, the worst forms of the promises of mass commodification and consumerism. Mm. Uh, it makes us easy prey to, I think, some of the great mysteries and fantasies and some of the most harmful self-delusions uh, to which modern society has to offer. There's a, there's a line from uh, one of Alistair MacIntyre, the great moral philosopher, one of his earliest books on Marxism and Christianity, where he says that capitalist society engages a kind of full machinery, a full pedagogical machinery to manufacture the sort of political subjects and the sort of moral bodies that are capable of succeeding within capitalist societies. In other words, humans don't naturally thrive within capitalism. They need to be constrained and chastened and shaped and fashioned. They need to have their wills remade so that they come to value the things, the practices, the dispositions that for virtually all of human history have been regarded as vices, namely lack of self-control. Go on. Do you know what's so interesting about that, though, is that if you read the philosophers of the most kind of I don't know, unvarnished forms of capitalism, mm. you know, the Hayek's, yeah. whatever, it's, that's... The whole point of capitalism is that it... It's natural. Well, I guess they were... Or spontaneous, they might say. Yeah. But that it's not coercive in the way that... Or certainly authoritarian politics is, right? So authoritarian, or perhaps a better word in this instance, is totalitarian politics, very explicitly goes about trying to create a new man. Mm. That was the... That's right. Um, that's the language, actually, mm. quite specifically of all the totalitarian movements. The Nazis had it, the fascists had it. Even um, if it means, so and in fact, it. especially if it means, the sacrifice of actually existing men. Well, yes, of course. Yeah. But they, they put up an ideal vision of a person. Yeah, that's right. Only the Soviets really had an ideal vision of a woman as well. Mm, that's true. Who, had, who straddled that kind of um, family and worker identity divide. But they, they're very explicit about it. This is the person that you will be. And we will now bring to bear all of the power and will of the state in order to fashion that human being. So part of what lies at the heart of these sort of, you know, prototypically progressive um, political movements is they are trying to bring about a new world with new people in it. And the whole point of capitalism was that it wasn't that. People would discover themselves mm. or they would discover some version of themselves or they'd be influenced by a series of intersubjective encounters in which they pursue, pursue their own interests, but actually no one's in charge of it. Hence the promise of America's interventions overseas that once you topple a dictator, once you move away a tyrant, once you scratch beneath the seemingly non-European surface of the skin, then what lies beneath is a essentially a liberal consumer. Yeah, hmm. an American capitalist. American capitalist. Yeah. But isn't it interesting then that you get to McIntyre saying actually capitalism is trying to create a new human being? I'm not entirely sure it's right. Mm -hmm. Just because, look, I, sorry, I think what's right is that over time capitalism creates human beings that are different from human beings in previous societies and in non-capitalist societies. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that's a trivial observation because that's true of probably every political system is that over time it influences the people who live under it and they become a certain way. And so to make that observation, I don't, know, I don't know how far that really gets you. I think what capitalism does, I think that the true bit of what you said um, from McIntyre 
is the last bit, which is that it turns what we've traditionally regarded as vices into virtues. Mm. And that that sort of legitimation process is new, or at least that declaration is new. But the fact that they're regarded as vices in the first place and the fact that so much moral energy in so many moral traditions and religions is devoted to encouraging people to restrain themselves from succumbing to those vices tells you that there is something natural and appealing about them. Mm -hmm. You don't need to convince people something is a vice that they should avoid if they have no desire for it anyway. Can I push the point further? I mean, I think you're onto something, and I think in a very real way you're anticipating precisely McIntyre's point. So, So let's just put it this way. For a great deal of the moral philosophical tradition, and in this I'd also include a number of the religious traditions that intersect with that moral philosophical tradition. And we've, we discussed this during our Ramadan series earlier this year. There is a kind of inescapable tension that exists within uh, certain dispositions of the body, certain desires, certain longings, and other dispositions, say higher longings. Uh, there's disagreement about whether certain things exist, quote-unquote, in the soul and other things exist, quote-unquote, in the flesh, so that the real conflict is between the body and the soul or between, say, the higher powers and the lower powers, the baser, uh, the baser instincts or longings of the body. So the idea that there's that, there's that conflict there and to some extent any form of moral advance involves constraining or overcoming or restraining the one in the interests of the other. I mean, there is something about that that I think is instantly recognizable by any real or meaningful survey of the history of moral philosophy. The idea that philosophy, for instance, uh, was most widely regarded, and you see this in Plato, you see it in Aristotle, you see it in the Roman Stoics, that philosophy really is a kind of spiritual exercise, um, it's a fashioning and a constraining and a shaping and a shaping and chastening of the will so that it longs for the right things, so that it seeks yep. the best things, so that it doesn't give itself into mere appetites. Uh, I but mean, that's the real transformation, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Now, what I think is interesting, and here's where I think there really has been a transformation. There has been a shaping of the self under the conditions of capitalism that has maybe sometimes escaped our notice. Um, You can see it in in, in two ways. One would be in the way that we regard the skin. I know this is going to sound weird, and uh, I'm going to get through this as quick as possible so we can get to the real topic. But it's just fascinating. I really learned this. I've been shaped more than anyone else on this topic by uh, the French philosopher Hervé Jouvin, J-U-V-I-N, who used to work, incidentally, for a cosmetics company before he found a more disreputable life in philosophy. Um, But he said that the idea that the person's true worth is in the person's invisible self and the skin is just the body, the shell within which the person's true worth resides. He says that's the thing that has been systematically eradicated within capitalism. So that what we now have is that the person's soul, the person's true self, the person's real worth is or has relocated, has migrated to the level of the skin itself. So he said, what we now have is the human race is divided not so much between the high and the low, between the wealthy and the desperately impoverished, uh, or much less even between, say, white and non-white races. He says, instead, the human race is divided between those who have mastery over the condition of their skin versus those whose skin is merely subjected to the ravages of nature and the passage of time. And he pointed out that one of the ways that we register that is firstly through the process of hair control or hair reduction. So that those who are most brutally associated with nature, you know, death and decay is just what these people do. They also tend to have uh, unconstrained growth of hair. Too much hair on their faces, too much hair on their bodies, too much hair uh, on their chins. Um, And that's what displays the fact that they have not got control of themselves, that they're simply in a state of nature. Contrast that to the affluent West, who control everything about where hair grows and where it doesn't. 
But nothing internal. But nothing internal. But that doesn't matter because all that matters, the whole realm of control is at the level of the skin so that we defy aging. We defy change and wrinkles. And not just that, we also transform ourselves. We make ourselves the author of our own bodies through inking. Through the kind of yep. artistic, so so I mean, I, I think at, it's at a, the same time as we're enslaved to pursuing an aesthetic. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we don't we don't have the spiritual resources to overcome that connection. So we get, um, you know, body dysmorphias and we get eating disorders and we get all of that. But what we do retain or at least strive for is the capacity to control the physical. I've often wondered about this. I, I, I think I might have even said something about this in the context of Ramadan, because one of the things about Ramadan is when you get asked about fasting, the, the question is obviously, but why would you do that? And it seems to me there's no way to answer that question about how you might undergo some kind of hardship on a spiritual quest. The only analogy you can reach for that people will immediately understand is you undergo physical pain in order to look better. <laughs> mm, mm. Our culture understands that really well. Yes, that's right. It's it's about the only pain slash hard sleep, hardship slash sacrifice that we do understand. Um, and even then we look for ways around it, you know, the weight loss pill or whatever. But but we do get that. People get, oh, yeah, I'll have to endure a lot of pain and have a lot of discipline in the gym because then I'll get to look, you know, this. I'll, I'll meet this aesthetic mm, mm. that I'm after. Yeah. So I think, I mean, this is... Uh, I think this is a vital point because it does say something about the modern uh, physical aesthetic, uh, that it's about control, that it's about def the defiance of the ravages of the state of nature. Um, and it also reflects, and this again, Willie, this is why I've kind of always loved that little aphorism from Slavoj Žižek, you cannot love your neighbor unless you smell your neighbor. That one of the things that he's gesturing at there is that in as much as we try to become antiseptic, we try to control our smells, we try to control our hair, we try to control the extent to which our physicality imposes itself upon others. We wrap ourselves in layers of hygienic separation. Um, there's something about, quote unquote, smelling one's neighbor where you are confronted by the, not just the physical, but also the moral reality of the other person beyond their and our control. You are assaulted, if you like, by their presence in their moral reality. I think there's something about that that is kind of radical and remains for me radically challenging in our time. So that's, that's the one way where I think our sense of ourselves, how we exist in the world, really has been changed under the conditions of capitalism. But the other way, and this brings us more directly, although not unrelatedly, to the, to the topic at hand, is in the clothing that we seek. It's kind of interesting. Well, they're directly related. They are directly related. So in exactly the same way as my skin expresses the real me, the skin expresses the real me in the same way, um, the way that we think about the clothes that we buy, the clothes that are offered to us is the clothes. I mean, you know, I often sort of say sometimes or I hear my wife or you and I both know people who will have said Oh, I didn't like that. It just wasn't me. I didn't like that shirt. I didn't like those pants. I didn't like that. I didn't like the dress. It's just not me. So to some extent, clothing, the fashion that we seek out, the clothing that it offers itself is meant to be expressive. It's not making ourselves something that we're not. It's making ourselves truer, more expressive of our real selves than we otherwise would have been. And yet, at the same time, the clothes that were offered are adjusted to a standard that defies who we in fact are. So I'm someone... Or, or is set for us. Or, or, or is set for, for us to which we must conform ourselves. So this is in this year. That's not in. Or, or, um, or this is a body shape that is accommodated, but that body shape is not. Well, that's more the hard end of it, yes. yes. But, but I'm, I'm just staying with your point about self-expression. Yeah, go on. It's self-expression, but within often commercially defined boundaries. That's right. That fluctuate from season to season. Who was it? Was it someone like Oscar Wilde or whatever who said fashion is a form of ugliness so monstrous they have to change it every six months? <laughs> like, it sounds like Oscar Wilde, yeah. Yeah, it does sound like so. I should look up who it actually is. But... um. But this is the idea. What I find intriguing about the way fashion works 
is the seemingly arbitrary judgments that are made that are then quite wholeheartedly adopted by people seeking to express themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now, I know there are exceptions to that. There are people who dress in counter-fashion ways. There are people who break the boundaries and set the new fashion. I know from t- speaking to people who work in this sort of area that they aren't entirely arbitrary changes. They, often you can track these things. They show up, these trends show up in art, for example, first, yeah. and then find their way through. So I understand there's a bit more of what you might call a science to it. But nonetheless, in the broad, it seems like an observable phenomenon that suddenly there's a declaration is made from on high about the ways in which you might express yourself. <laughs> and then you go on and conform, more or less, in the name of self-expression. Yeah, but, but then there's also there's the flip side to that. And that's that in the same way that the skin is meant to reflect the true self or is meant to express the true self. In the same way, then, that we seek out clothing that is meant to express our true selves. That, if you like, uh, reflect, maybe don't add to the value of who we are, but display the value of who we, in fact, are. In the same way, clothes that are worn that are, let's just put it this way, ill-fitting or actually unfashionable, not just fashionably unfashionable or preemptively fashionable, but actually unfashionable, clothes that seem to have been made for the body as it is rather than for the body that is idealized. Mm. Those clothes also reflect, reflect then in the same way that, say, broken teeth or unmanicured hair uh, reflect on the soul of the person, ill-fitting clothes are then taken uh, as a kind of obverse of status symbol are taken to reflect the poor state, the impoverished internal state of the person who wears them. There's something about that that I just find terrifyingly coercive. And yet, so I know, I know you want to say this is one of the products of a concept of fashion, Right. And the idea of clothes as a commercial concern, right? That we go from, I don't know, what would it be? People making their own clothes or perhaps someone who is in the village making clothes for other people because they're skilled at it. But nonetheless, you come in as you are, we make clothes for that. Mm. Uh, and then you get about your life. The, the replacement of that with an industrial complex that then prefabricates these things for you and you have to fit to them. Mm-hmm. And then it decides, makes all these clothing decisions for you, and then you have to adopt those decisions. I know we want to lay that kind of, or, or identify that as a, a key difference, something inherent to the nature of fashion as opposed to the nature of, nature of clothing. But it is also true that there is a sort of long pre-industrial morally inflected tradition of Dressing well. Of course. Of course. Right. And, and of reflecting something not about self-expression so much, uh, which is perhaps interesting, as things like dignity or comportment or manners. Mm-hmm. And this shows up culturally. I mean, I don't know enough about French culture and French history to make this observation uh, historically and say exactly where it came from. But this idea you do get turning up in French culture that it's not so much that you dress up nicely to be showy, but you dress up nicely because... This is what you owe other people, is not to disrespect them by being an eyesore or, or something like that. There, there's something in that that is pre-fashion, it seems to me, as an idea, mm-hmm. pre-modern, and is still morally inflected, and which could occasion judgment on a person who flouts those rules, if not in exactly the same way as someone who makes bad fashion choices gets judged. Um, then at least in a way that is somehow commensurate with it. Hmm. Well, I don't disagree with that at all. The idea. Do you have a problem with the pre-modern version and not? Sorry, do you have a problem with the modern version, and not the pre-modern version? Do you think they're the same? The idea of of the clothes we wear as a communicative gesture, as a form of our sociality, I think is important, and I think it's commensurate with any rigorous conception of what it is we owe one another within an integrated or meaningful moral community. I've got no issues with that. But take, for instance, I'm rereading, it's part of my reading over the summer months, I'm rereading uh, Elizabeth Strout's four-part AMGASH series, 
uh, beginning with My Name is Lucy Barton. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, Lucy Barton is a writer who came up out of extreme poverty and has no sense of what fashion or non-fashion is. She just knows clothes and clothes as a form of kind of fundamental modesty. And it's not until she arrives at university and she is humiliated by her uh, art professor um, with a form of kind of unmitigated contempt that she feels suddenly ashamed, not just of her clothes, of her self. I think that's something, that's something radically different. The idea that clothes aren't just something outside of us, but are expressive, and again, not expressive of our social bond or of what we owe one another, uh, or of what we owe our common life, but rather that they express something deep in our own value. And the so way individual status. Individual status, than, but also yeah. the way that clothes become an imposition of the contemptuous gaze of others that I feel. So, so, so whereas once upon a time... The person who dressed shabbily was expressing contempt for those around them. Yes, exactly. Now the person who dresses shabbily is the subject of contemptuous gazes exactly. from those. Precisely them. right. Precisely right. Should we get to our guest? I'm yes. excited about our guest. Because she's because where this idea comes from. <laughs> indeed. I, I remember where it came from. If I, Even if I remember nothing else about it, <laughs> I remember where it came from. And she is the reason. Uh, you're about to meet her. Our guest is Robin Farrell. She's adjunct professor in the Center for Law, Art, and Humanities at the Australian National University. We had her on, as a matter of fact. Hello, Robin. Thank you so much for coming back on the minefield. Oh, hi, Scott. How are you going? Hi, Waleed. Good to hear you uh, both we, chatting. <laughs> we, we had Robin on during our Ramadan series because uh, we had been kind of fascinated by a write-up of a book of hers called Philosophical Essays on Free Stuff, which I've just got to say is a minor masterpiece. It really is. What fabulous. a wonderful book it is, by the way. It is. It it's is just, wonderful. It's so quirky in a way. And the reason but, I think, Waleed, is that you, you didn't suggest this idea as long as you think you did, because Robin very sweetly sent us copies of the book after we had her on the show. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Which would have been, what, April, May this year? And we sort of avidly read it since. And it was around that time. It would have been around uh, May, June. Uh, that the idea of having you on and talking about fashion. So, Robin, I'm not even going to ask you a question. You've heard what we've said. Where do you want to take us? Oh, well, you've covered so much ground, guys. Of course, there's hopefully more to be said. But it is a really interesting uh, topic, I think. And it's interesting, well, partly, I suppose, because it challenges two really basic prejudices that I think we carry around with us. This is really at the beginning of the inquiry, right, you know, the first would be that um, we are kind of pilots of a machine that we move around in, that is our body, right? But that we, as the pilot, are making choices and conscious deliberations and so on about things that concern that machine, like, yeah, it's um, outer layers. <laughs> um, so that's the first kind of idea of the body that I think needs to come under review when we start to look at the whole thing about um, clothing and what it means. I mean, by the way, I'm not a fashion historian or anything like that. I think it's important to to honour the ways in which we get interested in these things, um, at, first of all, out of our own personal experience, you know. Mm. And you were talking about that element of shame and self-respect. That seems to me to be um, a very direct line into one's social being, mm. and it often happens through clothes. I mean, maybe we're all a little bit too old now to have it fresh in our minds, but remember back in the day when you'd go to the school social and you didn't have the right thing on. Mm. <laughs> How right. awkward that was. And in fact, if I, I remember going, because I grew up in the country, I remember going to um, a year seven social. So we were pretty young, you know, about what, 12 years old. And there was a, a girl there whose mother had cut down her wedding dress for her to come to the mm. um, social. Now, you can imagine what happened to that poor young girl. She sat the whole night completely out of, um, you know, out of the loop. Nobody asked her to dance. Nothing happened at all around her because it was not only anachronistic that she was wearing, 
that her parents or her mother or whoever had completely misread the dress code. I mean, I think we were all in hot pants, if I may say. <laughs> at that time, which probably says something about my age. I reckon looking but, back at those photos, she wins and you don't. <laughs> well, it was a beauty. You know, this is what's tragic. It was a beautiful dress mm. and her mother, you know, was of some social standing obviously and had an idea about what young women wear to these first social events. But um, I can tell you it was like an extraordinarily tutelary moment mm. for those of us who were anxious about what we wear. And I was just glad that it wasn't me who had precipitated that shaming event, if you see what I mean. <laughs> can I, can um, I mention, Robin, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because just before you began on that little excursus, I just watched a walk outside the window here at the studio, a bunch of school kids obviously on some excursion of their own. And it just, I mean, all in uniform. And I just looked at them with immense gratitude that they're all in uniform. My, my two little boys are so weird. They've, they've inherited some of my neuroses. It, I, I feel terrible. I apologize to them for it constantly. They're terrified by free dress days. Yeah. Because, yeah, because they're worried that what they wear is going to draw attention to them and not in the good way. They're worried about sticking out instead of simply blending in. They're worried that maybe their friends won't have read the notice that it's going to be free dress day and won't have brought a gold coin or whatever. And so, and so on free dress day, they just wear their, their sport uniform because they simply want to, they don't want anybody, they don't want to stick out. They don't want to be the object of scrutiny or interest. And, you know, when we were talking about that, I just sort of, I poured out my heart to them sort of apologizing because my, I mean, my dream being out in public is being so completely indistinct and wearing something that is so completely unmemorable that my presence in the wider world doesn't even attract a notice. And it just, I, you know, this is why I've never understood the kind of agitation in the name of freedom uh, on the part of many school kids in my home country for kids not to be forced to wear school uniforms. It seems to me that uniforms are almost one of the greatest gifts that we give to the social well-being of our children at schools. But again, maybe that just reflects something of my own neurosis as well. I think there's a great deal in what you're saying, actually. I think that the, probably does, there's a division perhaps between the more extrovert confidence that wants to show something of themselves in what they wear and the um, more introverted version. But it, I suppose the general, you know, coming back to a more general point then would be something like um, there's an author, Anne Hollander, who's written a lot mm. about the history of costume and dress. And her observation, when I first read it, I was really taken with it because I'd never really thought of it that way before. She says dressing is about, um, or clothes are about looking real and not, you know, so they're not instantaneously about impressing or any of the other second order things that happen as a result of what you wear. In the first instance, they're about looking like you, you know, kind of grew there, <laughs> that mm. you're in the right place, in the right context. Mm. And I think there's a, there's just lots of ways, that, although we pride ourselves on being a more relaxed society, you know, and more than, say, the 19th century and a whole lot more forgiving there's still some ways in which it's it's extremely revealing, if I can use that word, to com to look at things like dress codes. You know, you can't go into the back. I don't. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the codes are for um, men, but you can't go in thongs into certain contexts. You can't wear dresses that don't cover the shoulders. You know, so there's whole dress codes that, you know, on one level come down to what we would describe perhaps as modesty but which have been set ahead of time for to prescribe certain kinds of social role. It's interesting to think about what the institutions are that have those roles. Oh, sorry, those rules. And mm, they tend to yes. be ones that are aged, um, yes. in a sense that they're old, and trying to preserve a certain, I don't know if ethos is the right word, maybe it's just an aesthetic, but I feel like it's something more than that. They're trying to be a slice of something that sits outside the maelstrom. So they're, what are they? They're golf clubs. They're, um, yes, and certain they're bars. They're me members' reserves at sporting stadiums where you have to wear a tie or a collared shirt or, or something like that. Um, well, I suppose back in the day there was this idea that if you didn't have a tie, 
you couldn't come in, right? So it's an obvious yeah. um, legacy of a class structure. Stratification, yeah, yeah. But I suppose, I mean, I was using that as a quick, I mean, there still are ways in which, you know, places that you can't wear thongs and shorts, right, in Australia, even though that's a ubiquitous uniform for a lot of people a lot of the time. There's still places you can't wear jeans, but I suppose I'm also more trying to focus on the the places where you must wear jeans, for example, mm. <laughs> <laughs> or you're completely out of context. This is sort of the more of the Hollander idea about becoming real by what you're wearing. Mm. And some people, um, of course, take a much more fine-grained interest in clothing and fashion and and really use it differently. But for the rest of us, just walking around the shopping centre or going to the gallery or going to work, what we put on is about looking like we belong in that milieu, right? So that's a, mm. sort of our first our first aim. And I'm not sure that free expression, uh, I mean, of course, we do have a choice between the grey tie and the red one, <laughs> but it's yeah. a pretty constrained one, isn't it? But mm. that is also being eroded everywhere, right? So officers increasingly moving to tireless and then beyond that, perhaps just free dress. Like you, you're starting to see now, I mean, we've seen it in our parliament. I mean, horror of horrors. We've we've seen the tie ditched um, <laughs> repeatedly now by um, people, I think, in both houses of parliament, right? So at the same, I hear what you're saying and, and it's undoubtedly true, but the opposite is true, right? The trend line is is clear and it seems like the logical extension of a of a ethos of self-expression rather than an ethos of meeting a standard, which is what dress codes are ultimately about. They set a standard for comportment. So I think that um, the trend line that you mentioned is very important in one way. You know, as you say, there's a trend away from a certain kind of um, parliamentary protocol. Hopefully that's a bit to do with the diversity of the group, you know, increasing. But I also think that the fact that the codes are changing is not the surprise, right? It's actually the the continuity of there being a particular way that you need to look in that situation, even if that way is now relaxed, right? Now you've got to not wear a tie. Or if you do, you brand yourself as a particular kind of subject or, you know, social mm. creature. That's really the point I was supposed to make, I was trying to make um, about being real. Mm in the situation. Mm. Um, I think that's just the beginning. I mean, obviously what we were, what you guys were talking about earlier about the pre-modern and the um, capitalist organisation and so on, those things are, are the things that one has led to discuss then when looking more at the way in which these clothes and dress codes are changing. And I suppose I'm calling a dress code something as broad as what you wear to hear a band, uh, just as much as, you yeah. know, what you wear... Well, some, yeah, you, you, for example, most of us don't wear our pyjamas anywhere, right, except at home. Am I right? <laughs> and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Because I what happens if you though, do? Robin. There have been moments, I'll tell you that. <laughs> if you wear your pyjamas down to, even to get the milk, right, I think you're allowed to wear your pyjamas to pick up the paper on the front yep. lawn, right? Yep. But if you wear your pyjamas anywhere else, for, for example, uh, I think people would, what would happen is you start to look like you don't belong. There's something going on here. And mostly people are worried that, that there's a mental disorder happening here, right? Mm, yeah, <laughs> that, you, yeah. that you don't know how to read the, the room is indicative mm. of you having a whole series of other more profound uh, dislocations with your space. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but the closer you live to university, the more people you see wearing pajamas. <laughs> well, this is the thing. You've got to do it. You've got to do it in groups. That's yeah, the thing. It, right? that, 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 that comes exactly like, right. A, right. like a carefree youth type thing, or we've just had a big night, or we're being funny, or something like that. But either way, it's communicate. There, there is something in the context or the subtext yeah, true. that says, "No, no, we're all right. We're doing this for a reason." Can um, I can I pick yes. you up though, Robin, on the issue of belonging? I actually find it really interesting on on two levels, and maybe this will be the little hinge in our conversation. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville said that one of the casualties of democratic egalitarianism is that the physical or external indicators of status and caste are washed away effectively. 
and that people become largely indistinguishable from one another in terms of the particular um, uh, class or group to which they belong. So one of the effects of that is that citizens are often rendered invisible to one another. Uh, they don't know, which isn't to say they can't see one another, but they can't tell, are you one of us? Do we have the same values? Do we have the same interests? Can we form an ad hoc association? And it, it is kind of one of those reminders, I think, that clothing is used and is assiduously used as a marker of, I am one of those. Are you one of us? And the extent to which it is then used as a kind of imposition or signal of status um, continues to be uh, I can't help but think about that as a kind of counter or anti-democratic sentiment, especially when we then regard the clothes that one wears as being a sign of less worth or as holding a less than, say, uh, virtuous political position. So I really like this idea of belonging as if you are wearing something whereby you belong where you are. I think that kind of suggests something like Tocqueville's idea of invisibility to one another, whereby we need to seek out what is of greater value or what is of greater worth through the process of interaction and not merely in the mode of appearance. Yeah, perhaps the only problem that I'd have really with that sentence is the word mere. Okay, <laughs> Because nice. I think appearance is the mode of communication. Yes. Well... I mean, not counting people's speech, there are, you know, it's another way that we know them and a very important way that we know them. And that's, I think, why clothing, although presented to us as natural and even as trivial, is actually a, a, a very strong way of organising, as you say, that recognition of each other as whether we're trustworthy or not or include, you know, able to be included in our deeper social adventures, you know. I mean, it seems to me that the, as I was saying right at the beginning, you know, we, we begin with these ideas, first of all, that we are we have this under our control, under our conscious control, uh, how we appear to others through what we wear and so on. And we also have this view of the body that we are moving around in as somehow um, pre-social to that sort of layer, mm. right? It's a natural, it's a given and both those things actually are challenged if you start to investigate uh, clothes as a regime, basically, you know, as a, as a kind of, um, as a social order. Mm. May I ask a question that takes us in a totally different direction, Scott? Mm, go. Robin, I want to return to some of the conversations we were having before about fashion, um, which is yes. what? I suppose it's the... It's where the idea of clothing meets a commercial and cultural imperative or a cultural imperative that is commercially determined. Maybe there's a better definition of it than that, but let's start with that. If our observations about how fashion changed the nature of clothing and how actually, in a way, it solved so few of the problems that might have existed prior to fashion coming along. You know, the, the idea that when people made their own clothes, wealthy people had much nicer clothes than poorer people, for example. Well, that's still true, right? <laughs> even if the clothes aren't better, they have a better label on them or something like that. So the, even things like social, strat social stratification don't get solved. They just get mm. re-expressed. If these observations are true, is fashion inherently unethical? Mm, or, or is there an ethical version of it? And here I'm not talking about arguments about sweatshops or the making of clothes. I mean, just as a, as a concept, can it, fashion be ethical? I think that's a, a fabulous question, but it's very difficult to answer in one sentence. You know, <laughs> you it's like three. a lot of the... <laughs> can I have three? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a lot of the, the sense in which the um, body is... Uh, not our own and is organised for us, does raise an ethical question about how we are going to be in the world, right, in a world that we aren't completely agents in, a world that we inherit as much as we 
you know, fashion. So to use a <laughs> to use a word, <laughs> yeah. So I think I think there are the. I mean, I'm thinking perhaps of the um, you know French philosopher Foucault, who wrote a great deal about these sorts of regimes, and I'm sure um, fashion is one of the regimes that he meant when he was writing about disciplining the body. But he also went in search, and I'm not a Foucauldian, you know, like I won't die in a ditch about it, but I do think it's interesting the way he went into, say, uh, Greek philosophy in search of the ethic of um, the proper body and, and the way that the body was comported toward other bodies when we where we live, you know. So I think that um, there, there must be a way to express one's, oh, this is going to sound brutal, but to express something about one's captivity even in those orders, right, um, in the constrained choices that we make about what we wear. But I thought the point that you made earlier is was where you would have to start um, exploration in order to move on to the point of the personal ethic at least. And, and that was in the distinction between, say, capitalism and uh, totalitarianism as orders of the production mm. of social value. And it seems to me that fashion is so clearly a creature of the means of, you know, of the production that is capital because it, it directs its um, subjects through desire and not through fear. So yep. when we imagine that our self-expression is somehow pulling us away from those uh, disciplining systems, we're actually um, deluding ourselves a bit, you know, because in fact we are pressed into desire, everything in the consumer um, system and being a good consumer um, is actually about engaging that register in us um, and, of course, the desire to conform being part of that. I don't know what, yeah, I don't know what your response to that is, but that would be one part, one place I would start looking for an ethic. Well, can I, can I just pick up the point about the machinery that undergirds this? Because it's not just the production of the fashion or the production of the objects that will then appeal to or will then pique desire. But then it's also, okay, here is a form of fashion that presumes a kind of idealized body. It presumes a body that is accommodated within this particular way of being together. And it's a it's a idealized version of the body to which your body does not fit. Um, that's a size. Those are dimensions that I cannot adjust myself to. And so there is something about the very non-belonging in the fashion that is offered that then creates a, a sense of, of out-of-placedness within the world, which then makes us, I think, easy prey to that other realm of production, namely an entire industry in allowing us to shape our bodies in such a way that we can fit in the clothes that we have come to desire. Um, so Scott, Scott, this is a really important point, so I don't mean to diminish it at all, but I do wonder how far it goes in practice because a fashion industry that only made clothes for ideal bodies that don't really exist would very quickly go out of business, wouldn't it? So in other words, there has to be something statistically unusual about that phenomenon for fashion to work. Otherwise, you would have thought, unless it's undergirt by really strong cultural forces, you would have thought it would just take certain fashion houses, certain designers to make clothes that fit and everyone would just flock to them. I guess just briefly, what I mean quite precisely is fashion that, how can I put this without sounding like a grump? Um, just sound like a grump, go on. Fashion that prioritizes and valorizes skinniness, fashion that seems to punish malformedness or more realistic. I, I just are, are you talking about, are you talking about? If it punishes in sizing or in design? Both. They're, both. They're slightly Precisely different. both. Okay. Precisely both. Hence uh, the regime of forms of fitness and body shaping and mortification yeah. uh, designed to accommodate itself to a form of fashion that valorizes and in fact gives ethical value 
to skinniness and fitness over the other options. Mm. Robin? So, I yeah, I was going to say, I think it, um, what you're pointing to, Scott, is some, a really fun paradox <laughs> about fashion. I mean, first of all, it's obviously not one thing. Mm, like it right. starts somewhere and it ends up somewhere else, right, which is the difference between haute couture and pret-a-porter, you know, on the street fashion. What, what the fashion designers make in size two gets made again for the rest of us in size 14, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so at one level there's a kind of striving for the extraordinary and the remarkable at that top end of the... Nobody's really expecting that Chanel will sell out of, you know, the little black dresses because most people don't inhabit that world and it's too expensive and that's what proves it. I think there are designers who've been heard to say that they won't make their clothes in a size larger than 10, for example, because they don't want it being worn by somebody whose body doesn't fit their um, design, right, (laughs) their idea of a perfect body. So there's that whole layer, you could say, of elitism almost or some kind of... um, and um, that that's where it starts to interact with art, actually, as well, mm-hmm. whereas in search of the extraordinary rather than the ordinary. But I think what that tells the rest of us, if you sort of mean, is that, and I'm, you know, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, you were going to be a grump, so now I, I'm tempted to be a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but it does seem to me that, that a lot of the um, discourse of fashion is about making us anxious about our actuality. Mm-hmm in order that we will go and find, you know, yet more, because the consumer transaction is that kind of um, identity transaction, right? I mean, at, at bottom, it's a it's a, a version of, of my relation to my objects around me, right? And, and objects have some kind of identity meaning to all of us. I mean, they have to. That's how we build our identities. And so it's, it seems to me that part of the point of fashion, both the fact that it changes all the time and the fact that some of it is impossible to wear. <laughs> and, you know, you see people, sla- as they say, slaves to fashion, attempting to wear these garments, is, is testament to the take-home principle of, you know, you are not meant to be comfortable in these transactions, mm. actually. Hmm. Does that sound too... No, um, no, no, no. Because, well, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a common critique of capitalism, isn't it, that yeah. it... And I'm carrying based, it over, yeah. Just. Sure, but it's, yeah, it's predicated on the idea that you must be dissatisfied with something. Otherwise, yeah. why would you go out and buy something to fix a problem? You need The problem needs to be planted in your mind somehow, or at least to arise in your mind somehow for you to want to buy something to solve it. Um, Robin, this was, I didn't actually, I was going to say it's everything I hoped for, but I'd forgotten what I'd hoped for. But I imagine <laughs> it's exactly what I hoped for. Uh, it's been wonderful to speak to you. And it was all stimulated by this wonderful little book that you wrote. So thank you so much for helping us see it through. Thanks very much. And I'm glad you liked the book. It's great that it's being read. That's brilliant. Oh, it's great fun, that book. Uh, Robin Farrell, adjunct professor in the Centre for Law and Humanities at the Australian National University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.